0: Reading this morning from 1 Samuel 20. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as you loved his own soul
1: good morning i'm going to begin this morning with a question for you to consider what's more important in your relationships truth or love in your marriage in your friendships what's more important truth or love. There's a wonderful book called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made by Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey. And in it, Dr. Brand draws this wonderful, really, analogy between the Christian faith, the church, the body of Christ, and our physical body. And in it, he draws the analogy of the largest organ in our body, which is skin, the organ of skin in our body and he draws that analogy as our skin which is soft and tender as love in the body of Christ then he draws the analogy of our skeletal system as being truth our skeletal system which is strong provides motion and he says what would happen if you had no skeletal system what would happen to your skin It would just be a big, mushy blob on the ground. (laughs) But what if you had no skin and only a skeletal system? You'd be cold and hard, and you'd do damage. And he says that's the same as in the body of Christ. Skin is like love. You need to have that be what touches people first and foremost. But love without truth is mushy and sentimental and does not help. But truth without love is hard and harsh and cruel and damaging. But truth and love together, skin and bones, together provide strength and motion and care and love power, all the things that a body needs to be able to function properly. It's a great analogy because it reminds us that truth and love are both important, both equally valuable in our relationships with one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, as Paul is talking about the body of Christ, he says, But speaking the truth in love... And he actually kind of coins the term there. It really could be translated truthing in love, living out the truth in love. We are to grow up into all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. So the growth in the body happens when truth and love are both brought into our relationships. Truth and love are both part of how we interact with one another. The truth needs to be there, but it needs to be encased as skin encases our skeletal system with love. Truth needs to be encased with love. But how does that look? How do we live out truth and love? How do we keep that balance? Because if truth be told, if we could look at our lives, probably most all of us err on one side or the other. We're either really loving but have a hard time with the truth or we emphasize the truth and we're not very good at love. How can these two be combined in a healthy way in our relationships with each other so that the body can grow, as Paul says, into Christ, into all that we're created to be? Well, this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 20, I think, gives us an excellent picture of truth and love together, working together in a close friendship. As we look at the friendship of David and Jonathan again, we looked at it a few weeks ago and it comes up again. In this passage, as they are both committed to truth and love in their friendship, so we are called to be committed to both truth and love in our relationships with one another. So pray with me and then we'll look together at what God wants to teach us from this passage. Lord, we confess that we are not real good at keeping this balance of truth and love. But may you speak to us today and help us see where we need to grow in our truthing, in our loving with one another so that the whole body might together, grow together into the body of Christ that you have designed for us to be. Open our hard hearts, Lord. Teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me bring you up to speed on where we are in the context of 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 20 today. Back in chapter 19, you remember, David earlier had killed Goliath and now Saul is beginning to get antagonistic. He's jealous of David. In chapter 19, Jonathan had come to David and said, Hey, my father, Saul, is out to kill you. You better watch out, David. And he says, you know what? I will go to my father and I will plead for you. And he does. In chapter 19, he pleads for David with his own father and says, why are you trying to kill David? He's loyal to you. He's a faithful man. Don't kill him. And Saul said, you're right. I've been wrong. I promise David shall not die. So Jonathan enacts this covenant, this promise from his own father. But in chapter 19, as it goes on, Saul immediately turns face again and tries to kill David. Three times from there on, in chapter 19, he tries to kill him. At one point, he throws a spear at him when they're in the courts. Another time, he tries to kill him at home. But David's wife, Michael, saves his life. And then another time he goes where David is with Samuel and the prophets, and God spares him there. Three times in chapter 19 he tries to kill David. Each time God protected him. So David at this point has had to run for his life. He's lost his family of origin, he's now lost his wife, whom he's had to run away from, he's lost his position in the court. He's alone in the world. So he goes to his one friend that he can trust, and that's Jonathan. And as chapter 20 opens, he goes to his friend, the one friend that has befriended him. And it's just a reminder to us that we often face hostility and rejection in this world. We all face difficult relationships and painful times, painful times when we feel alone, we might experience someone's anger or rage or rejection, loss, perhaps, in your family, and your job, and there's the pain of that. So how can we help each other in the midst of that? Well, let's see how David and Jonathan help each other. But what we'll notice as we go through, we'll keep coming back to this, is in their relationship is this wonderful balance of truth and love, skin and bones. <laughs> Truth and love, skin and bones. Verse 1 of chapter 20 says this, Then David fled from Naioth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? David shows up and he's in pain and he says, I don't understand why your father's trying to kill me. What have I done? Da- Jonathan, if I've done something wrong, show me because I don't understand why he's out to get me. Listen to Jonathan's response. Jonathan said to him, Far from it you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. See, Jonathan hasn't heard about the last three times his father tried to kill him he was maybe out of the court he was gone Saul hid it from him and he can't believe what David's saying now listen I talked to my dad (laughs) I got a promise from him and my father and I have a good relationship he would not lie to me he wouldn't hide something from me there's no way Jonathan is a godly man we've seen that over and over again but he's naive about his own father. He doesn't see the reality about his own dad, which a lot of us have a hard time seeing the reality about significant people in our lives because we want to believe that they're good. We want to believe the best about them. We want to trust. But he needs to see the reality of the situation if he's going to continue to grow as a godly man So in verse 3, David says, again, David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight, Jonathan. And Saul has said, Don't let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. So David tells him again, Listen, you don't know your father, Jonathan. Jonathan. It strikes me here that David could have thought, Jonathan doesn't get it, and he's close to his father, and I don't want to mess up their relationship, so I'll just let him be naive at this point. God will show him the truth at some point. But you know, David doesn't do that. I think in his commitment and his love for Jonathan... He's committed to helping Jonathan discover the truth, even the hard truth about his own father. He's not willing to let him continue in his naivete, in his foolishness. So I love Jonathan's response in verse 4. He says, Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Jonathan doesn't agree with David, but he trusts him enough to say, Well, you know what? I trust you. I'm willing because I'm committed in my relationship to you. Even though I don't agree with you, I'm committed to see what happens. I will stick with you, David. Whatever you say, I'll do. So in the next few verses, 5 through 11, we won't take time to read it all, but David comes up with a plan. And he says, well, let's do this just to help you see really the truth and how both of us see the truth about your father says hey tomorrow's this big feast it's the new moon feast it'll go on for a couple 3 days and i should be there because i'm part of the court i'm the general so we'll see how your dad reacts if he says hey it's fine if david's not there and it doesn't seem to bother him then probably things are fine but if he gets really angry jonathan because I'm not there, you just tell him, hey, he had to go to a sacrifice with his family in Bethlehem, and that's why he's not here. But if he gets really angry, then we'll know where his heart really is. So they make a plan together to discover the truth about his father. They're together committed to discovering the truth, even though they disagree And I think this is a wonderful example for you and I, for you and me in our relationships. Our tendency is to protect our own biased, prejudiced view of life. We want to maintain our own point of view and our own prejudices rather than call each other on those things, rather than help each other really see the truth. But true love... Brothers and sisters, true love means helping one another discover the truth about God, about ourselves, and even about us significant others in our lives. Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6, say this Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. In fact, the implication of that is that real love means open rebuke at times. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You see, real love, real friendship means we help each other, discover the truth, about God, about ourselves and about our others, <laughs> about others. How often do we say, well? I can't believe he would ever do that or I can't believe that's true and it's hard for us sometimes to see the truth about one another or even about ourselves. But real love helps us to see that. Think about Jesus with his disciples. Did Jesus love his disciples? Absolutely. Absolutely, and they knew it. But he was never afraid to challenge their foolish thinking. Remember with Peter in Mark chapter 8? As Peter has declared that Jesus is the Christ, it's a wonderful insight. And he says, God gave you this insight. It's a wonderful thing. Way to go, Peter. (laughs) You understand who I am. But then he says that as the Messiah, because he's discovered he's the Christ Messiah, says he began to teach them. This is verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Peter took him aside. Peter thought he was being helpful and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests. But man's. Notice how Jesus is not afraid to speak truth to help his friend, his disciple, understand truth. It's truth, but it's truth in the context of love. It was strong words, but it was in this context where Peter knew he was loved by Jesus. So these two friends, David and Jonathan, are committed to discovering the truth about Saul and really what the situation is. Now they go into the field. They've been in the court. And in verse 12, they go into the field together. And they renew their covenant of love. Laura just read the first part of this passage. It's a wonderful picture of this renewed covenant. And in this whole section, Jonathan does all the talking. And he says, David, I'm committed to you. I want you to renew your covenant to me. And I'm asking some things of you in this covenant I promise I will never hide anything from you. Whatever my father tells me or whatever I find out, I will be honest with you, David. You see, there's a deep trust and a commitment to truth in their covenant relationship with one another. Again, that's true love. It's a commitment to honesty with one another. I love you enough that I will be honest with you. I will be truthful with you. That's critical in all healthy relationships. As you've experienced, I'm sure, if there's hiding, if there's lying, if there's deceit in a relationship, it destroys trust. As has been well said, it's a common saying, it takes years to build trust and only seconds to destroy it. Some of you have experienced that in your families, in your marriage, etc. That's tragic because trust is imperative for us to be able to be in a healthy relationship with one another and believe one another what one another says. Walter Anderson writes, We're never so vulnerable than when we trust someone. It's true. We're very vulnerable when we trust. But paradoxically, if we cannot trust... Neither can we find love or joy. Trust is vulnerable. Trust is necessary for both love and joy. Have you seen it perhaps in your own marriage or other marriages? When trust is broken, it takes years to to rebuild, if it even can be rebuilt. And it can only be rebuilt if there's a renewed commitment to honesty, just like David and Jonathan have here, an honesty that says, I will speak truth to you. I will not hide from you. I will be honest with you. I promise. It can be rebuilt. Trust can be, but it's a hard road. One woman I worked with, she had had several affairs, walked out of her marriage. The man just waited, believed God wanted him to just wait. Wait. And he waited for several years until she came back and repented and said, I was wrong. But that didn't heal everything, right? Trust had to be rebuilt. And it took time as they began to learn to trust each other's words and begin to rebuild that trust. And they were able to restore their marriage. But it took time. Some relationships that have been broken, where the trust has been broken, can't be restored. And if you're in a relationship where trust has been violated, been broken, I encourage you to get help, to talk to somebody, to get counseling, to work on it together if the other person is willing to work on rebuilding trust, to get some help so that you can begin to have someone work with you to begin to rebuild that trust so it can be restored by the grace of God. Jesus says it's possible. In fact, he says the only time where it's really difficult and where divorce is allowed is in adultery because that so breaks the relationship of trust. It breaks the marriage bond. That even can be restored, and I've seen that as in the example I just gave, but it's, it's hard. It's hard. So Jonathan goes on and asks for a deeper covenant with David. They've already made a covenant together, but he says, you know... If I live, please spare my life. But if I die, will you protect my descendants, my house, he says. So he makes a covenant with David between their two houses now. Not just between the two of them, but between their two houses and the descendants who come after them. Please, he says in verse 15, show hesed, show loyal love to my house forever. You shall not cut off loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every enemy of David from the face of the earth. So they made a covenant. He made a covenant with the house of David. And here's what's great. David kept that covenant. After Jonathan was killed in battle with his father, And David became king. He looked for descendants of Jonathan and he found one son that was still alive, Mephibosheth. And he brought him into his court and he blessed him. He gave him his grandfather's land, Saul's lands, and he fed him and gave him money and loved him out of this covenant love that they had for one another. But see, that's a commitment to be people of our word, isn't it? Again, which is part of truth, part of trust, part of honesty in relationships. Real love means we are committed to that kind of follow-through and faithfulness to our commitments. Godly men and women are people of their word. They're committed not just to understanding truth, but they're committed as well to living it out with one another. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? (laughs) Are we people of our word? Do we do what we say? Because that's part of living in the truth and living in love. Skin and bones, truth and love. Well, in verse 24 on, they're back in the court and they're acting out their plan now. It's now the new moon feast. And Saul's there and Jonathan's with him. David's out hiding in the wilderness, not far out of town. And at this point, let me read this: David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall, and Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, oh, it's an accident. He's not clean. surely he's not clean." It came about the next day, the second day of the new moon feast, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan then answered Saul, Well, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, for he said, Please let me go, since our family had a sacrifice in the city, and my brothers commanded me to attend. And now, if I found favor in your sight, let me get away, that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table interesting picture here because Jonathan here is essentially lying for David isn't he? (laughs) It's kind of challenging thought. He's willing to lie for the sake of the truth. That's interesting. I don't know how you take this. Uh, one, One commentator Robert Bergen says this. This proactively safeguarded David by sequestering him and it avoided any use of force Granted, Jonathan would have to tell his father a lie, but not one, this is his interpretation, his understanding, this is not a lie that violates either the letter or the spirit of the law, the Torah, since its purpose was to preserve innocent life. For his part, David would merely absent himself for the royal court for two days. Now, I don't know how you see the right and wrong of what he did here, but it demonstrates Jonathan and David's commitment to discover the truth about Saul, and it demonstrates their commitment of love to one another. Well, listen to what happens then. Saul's anger burned, verse 30, against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. We have a modern expression that I won't repeat. That's what he's saying. He's cursing his own wife here. Do I not know that you're choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore, now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Notice how Saul tries to manipulate Jonathan. Jonathan. Uh, Bergen, again, says this. Saul appeals to three powerful motivators, shame, guilt, and greed. First, he noted that Jonathan's scandalous betrayal was bringing about personal shame. Second, in an attempt to elicit feelings of guilt, Saul noted that Jonathan's actions were also bringing shame on the mother who bore you. Isn't that interesting? Saul just cursed his wife and then says... Hey, Jonathan, you're bringing shame on your mom. Double standard. That is Ahinoam, whom he himself had just shamed by calling her perverse and rebellious. Third, Saul appealed to his son's greed, noting that as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Saul does whatever he can to divide these two to break up their friendship. Saul's jealous of their friendship. But he doesn't love his own son. He just sees his son as a tool for his own purposes. So he tries to manipulate him to get his way, which is to kill David. And finally, he just commands him, go get David and bring him back here. He has to die. If you commit to truly loving others... Satan and others will try to break that up. In a good marriage where truth and love are there and it's commitment and covenant with one another, Satan will try to break it up. We just need to realize there's spiritual warfare going on. Why Why is it so intense when we covenant with one another? Because God is a God of covenant. He covenants with us. He's made a covenant of love through Jesus Christ on the cross and says, I will never leave you or forsake you and I'm yours. And he's a God of covenant. And as we live out covenant with one another, God is glorified in a wonderful way. But Satan doesn't like that and he will try to break it up. Just like Saul is doing here. Well, Jonathan finally now is seeing the truth about his father. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, verse 32, and said to him, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Yeah, he finally gets it. Uh, this spear's coming. <laughs> I think my father's mad. Uh, three times Saul throws his spear, twice at David and once at Jonathan in the court, and he misses every time. This is a great warrior. He really is. He's a great general, but he misses every time. Who's in charge? God is, right? (laughs) It just shows the complete impotence, the powerlessness of Saul in his rage, in his anger. He has no power, no control anymore. So Jonathan finally faces the truth because of his friend David. He realizes how evil his father is. It's hard to face, but now he realizes he's got a choice. Do I go with my father or do I go with David? Do I lose my family, essentially, or do I go with David? This is an essential choice for Jonathan to make if he's going to be God's man from here on out. And it means because he chooses David, he essentially loses Trust in his relationship with his father. But what kind of trust is it anyway where his father's willing to kill him for his own ends? Some of you in your relationships have felt that choice. Do I ignore the truth that I know about this person or about their situation or so that I can maintain a relationship? Or do I bring forth the truth and take the risk of losing that relationship forever. Some of you have had to make that choice with your own parents, with your children, friends, spouses, siblings. That's a hard choice to make, isn't it? Do I ignore the truth or do I bring up the truth in love? But see, to ignore the truth is not love, ultimately. And I think that's part of the message of this whole story. To ignore the truth is not love because it eventually comes around to bite you in the end. And living by the truth is always better than, in terms of the movie The Matrix, taking the blue pill (laughs) and just staying in ignorance forever. It's a tough choice. But the choice for truth and love will always bring you closer to God in the long run, as hard as that may be. Well, verse 34, Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. That verse really stands out to me because Jonathan just lost his relationship with his father. He had a spear thrown at him. The court's in upheaval, it's crazy, and he's grieved, which he should be, but what's he grieved about? He says, not because my father has dishonored me, but I'm grieved because my father has dishonored David. It's a wonderful picture of loyalty. Bergen again writes, Jonathan's reaction thus serves as one of the purest displays of human loyalty found in the annals of human history. What a wonderful picture of loyalty to his own loss. That's love, folks. That's commitment. That's covenant. Well, the chapter ends with going back out in the field. Jonathan works out this plan of shooting arrows to let David know what's happening. If, if he yells to the boy who's chasing the arrows, go, they're beyond you, then it's a message to David. David, you've got to run. My father's out to get you. Well, that happens. The boy brings the arrows back. He sends him home so that Jonathan and David have this last chance to talk to one another. In verse 41 and 42, the end of the chapter, it's really one of the most touching scenes, I think, in all of Scripture, really. Verse 41 and 42, When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground. And bowed three times, and they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and parted while Jonathan went into the city. It's a powerful touching scene as they realize they probably will never see each other again. As a matter of fact, they do see each other one more time when Jonathan comes to meet him in the wilderness and strengthens his grip on God. It's a wonderful passage, but it's their last time to see each other. But here they don't know that. But David has to go run in the wilderness now. But notice how they end their time together. I commit you to the Lord. May the Lord be between us forever. That's the key ultimately to healthy relationships. That's the key to the balance of truth and love in relationships is keeping the Lord as the center. If each of us is seeking the Lord, if we're seeking to submit to Him, He will lead us to respond to one another more and more, even in our failures, Yeah, we'll fail, but he'll lead us more and more to respond to one another with truth and love, skin and bones. (laughs) Truth and love, skin and bones, both are part of a relationship where God is the center. And it grows out of that relationship with the Lord first and foremost. If you're struggling in relationships, and who isn't? In some way, if you're struggling to commit, to love well, to be truthful, to trust, commit yourself to the Lord first. Discover His love. Seek His truth, because He is a God of truth and love, and as you seek Him, He will lead you and guide you and forgive you and give you life and bring healing to those relationships that desperately need his hand of touch in them. We pray, and then we're going to take communion and celebrate his great faithfulness to us. Lord, thank you for David and Jonathan. What a marvelous picture for us of keeping this balance of both truth and love, this covenant of love, of chesed, of faithful, loyal love they have for each other. and yet also a commitment to truth and helping each other know the truth and live out the truth. May we be people who reflect truth and love to one another as we imitate you, a God who is a God of truth and a God who is love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus, because He was committed to both truth and love, (laughs) the truth that we are sinners, desperate sinners, and need His forgiveness. And His love towards us that was so great that He was willing to die for us in our sinfulness so we might experience life and forgiveness and love in Him. The cross is... I think the perfect example of both truth and love being perfectly balanced as he gave himself for us. And as Rod said a few weeks ago, it's a wonderful little statement, the cross reminds us that we are far more sinful than we ever knew. (laughs) And we're more loved than we've ever imagined. Let that be in your mind in your heart as we pass out the elements this morning.